So the identified mind, the mind that feels uh, like it knows what it is, who it is, where it's going, where it came from, is actually a very narrow bandwidth of experience. It's a pretty superficial layer of experience. But it's very easy when we're very busy and in a world of endless distraction to remain in that space and that narrow bandwidth of experience and not realize that that's what's happening. Perhaps you could call that the human condition, but it's a, a pretty easily disrupted experience actually. Strangely, we are very well conditioned to put a lot of energy into maintaining that narrow bandwidth, but put in the right set of conditions, the right circumstances, it does start to break down pretty rapidly. And one of the best circumstances or sets of conditions to do that is a retreat or a situation where there's sustained meditation, sustained, uh, perhaps not avoidance, but um, non-engagement and distracting activities which have a very hypnotic effect. As innocent as they seem, we often use um, distracting activities to keep ourselves in that narrow bandwidth of experience. Call it the separate superficial, um, separate self, the, 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 the ego. Um, but when we sit in this way, hour after hour, without distracting, without giving, giving it any candy, uh, we start to see the cracks pretty quickly. And that can feel, that can feel a lot of different ways. It can feel like a mystical experience, even ecstatic, it can feel sacred, it can feel peaceful or blissful. And there can be very abrupt shifts in experience into these states can also feel confusing, disorienting, uncomfortable. Um, interestingly, regardless of which side the experience is on in our perception, whether it feels dysphoric or euphoric, comfortable or uncomfortable, desirable or undesirable, doesn't actually matter. These are just sort of side effects of the unbinding process that's going on underneath. And that's what we're doing here, is we are engaging in this unbinding process. You can put on the shelf for now, whether that's something that you're doing or you're in control of, or it's something that's just happening to you, because that even doesn't matter, actually. That's nothing you need to sort out necessarily. It will sort itself out. But it's happening. We're here. We're sitting. We're feeling the effects of sitting, or we're starting to now, and we will certainly feel more of those over the next few days. Um, and when this, this narrow bandwidth of experience starts to break open or become disrupted, uh, we start to experience a, a much broader bandwidth of who and what we are and even of what is beyond any personal identity or any cognitive identity. And as that happens, we have no context for it. 
we our mind doesn't go, oh, I know what this is. It might kind of try to do that, but it, it can't really, um, it can't really put it into any container. And that's what our, our cognitive mind likes to do. It likes to try to put things in containers to keep itself in a subject object experience. So at first it might go, oh, I know what this is. This is, you know, how, whatever your expectations are. Maybe you, you've been to certain kinds of retreats and you'll say, oh, this is arising and passing away. I know what this is. Or this is samadhi or nirvikalpa samadhi, who knows. But we'll take these times, the mind takes these times to say, okay, I know what that is and put a stamp on it. Uh, and that can happen, that's fine. Those are thoughts of interpretations. They're not act the actuality of what's occurring. Uh, but we'll even move beyond that to where that tendency to, to put its stamp on things, to know where it is and how it is and feel oriented to something specific will really break down. Like it just can't do it anymore. And it just kind of exhausts itself. Uh, and then, then it's in, in a sense, even more of a um, more markedly uh, deviant from our normal experience. So in either polarity, it can be sometimes very dysphoric or disorienting or really uncomfortable or very confusing or almost like an existential fear that can come. It can also be uh, a mystical experience that's truly beyond the self, altogether beyond the self. Completely ineffable, impossible to describe, but fundamentally transformative, even in, in the experience of it and beyond the experience of it in, in the world of apparent time afterwards. That You can carry that with you. Um, <clears throat> and again, at some point, our mind will interpret that, those events as events, as experiences, as evidence of our, where we are, how we're doing and so forth. Usually later on, because often those, those experiences are so immersive that there's not a lot of record keeping at the, at the moment. Um, and when that's, in, when that's a profound enough experience, it, it might be what I would call like a pre-taste of awakening or, um, Essentially, it has all of the qualities, all of the flavor of what a, a true shift in identity would be without the shift in identity. And then at some point, something does shift. Something does fundamentally change. And that can feel quite dramatic or it can feel really not dramatic, but it's, but it's always noticed. It's always very obvious that something fundamentally has changed about the way we experience, in particular, ourself. But as it's how we experience moment to moment reality. Um, and it really is quite ineffable in the sense that you'll know something shifted, but you'll also know that in a very uh, paradoxical way, nothing has really changed, but something has changed. And it's sometimes it's clear and sometimes it's not. What's changed is you. The, the way you're taking yourself to be is what's changed. And it's not that it's changed, it's that um, an artificial version of it has been dissolved, actually. So that's why it feels so vast, feels so free for, for quite some time often, feels so fluid. This is what we call sometimes the honeymoon period. Um, now with that, we, it's not that we never experience that initial narrow bandwidth of, of the self that I was talking about earlier. 
it's not, it's not like you never experience it, but it's, it's very obvious that it's not real. It's not really who you are. You may not be clear on who or what you are or whether you're something or nothing, but it's very clear that you're not that, that cognitive self. That's, that spell's been broken. That's what awakening really is. Now, you'll inhabit it sometimes, or it'll seem like you, you are. It'll seem very much like back up in here, very contracted, a lot of um, doubt, struggling with our experience, struggling with our thoughts and our emotions. Like that can happen, certainly after awakening, but it's happening in such a different space, such a much more vast space. Um, and there's, again, paradoxically, there, there's uh, more peace always, even in this, even in these tumultuous experiences. Uh, but, it, but it's paradoxical because you also feel things more directly, strangely enough. You almost remember, you can almost like harken back when you were mind identified and say, oh, I wish, I wish I could be blissfully unaware or ignorant of my, how I'm affecting myself and others. Um, and you don't really wish it because if you really feel into it, you know that you're causing harm to yourself and others. It's uh, the state of ignorance. That, that state of ignorance is, um, it's just a matter of, of, of conditions before some kind of violence emerges, some kind of harm emerges uh, out of, emerges out of ignorance, out of delusion. So um, you can often remember feeling that way, living that way, and believing that. But you also know you, you can't have it back. It's not coming back because it was never really there. And it's weird. It's like a magic trick that you're playing on yourself and then you just can't play it anymore. Um, but again, that's all because it felt like you're in that narrow bandwidth of, of self up here. Now you're not up here anymore. You know, you can be up here, but you're also down here and you're also out here. And you also don't have control over where you are, <laughs> where, where experience takes you. Experience can take you very much into what we call the external, but it feels more like intimate, zero distance, like a non-dual. And you can also feel very intense emotions, which is often what we were blocking when we were in the narrow bandwidth of experience. And you, you, this isn't on your timing. You know, from here on out, it's pretty obvious, like this, there's some, in the relative sense, there's, there's some time that takes to unbind, but the timing of that is just not your choice. It doesn't work on, on your schedule. It works on its own schedule. Um, and the more we learn to trust that, and we'll fight it for a while. You'll fight it. You'll want it to be on your schedule. You'll want, um, but the, the more we trust that over time, the, the more something I'll just call wisdom arises. That's not a special kind of wisdom like you're a special person who can impart a wisdom verbally to others. It's just a wisdom uh, uh, in trusting how you live, trusting how life moves, um, trusting all of your experiences as complete just as they are, including doubt, self-doubt, even self-hatred, shame, guilt. Seeing yourself do and act, do things and act in ways that are completely counter to your realization. And yet you actually know sometimes you just can't, you can't not do that. You watch yourself doing things that are, that are sort of diluted. Um, it's a tricky one to talk about because I'm not saying that this gives you permission to act like a jerk. It doesn't give you permission to be abusive, but you will notice that there were things you were overlooking before 
very conveniently overlooking in that narrow bandwidth that were already habituated patterns. You're already doing it. Now you're just doing it and you're seeing yourself do it. Luckily, um, luckily that, that seeing actually uh, dissolves these tendencies because it's very uncomfortable. It's, it's much easier to harm someone else. I mean, even in, in minor ways when they actually feel like someone else. It's much harder to do it when it feels like you, you're harming. <laughs> no matter what, you're, you feel your effect on everything as you because you start to feel that dual, non-dualistic um, insight coming even if it's not a true realization yet of the non-dualistic. You, you, you see something or someone or an animal or person feel pain and you just feel it with them. You feel it like it's your pain. And um, makes it much, much more challenging to fool yourself on how you're affecting things and people and so forth. So in one sense, you could say it's sobering. Uh, but again, it also comes with a lot of that fluidity, a lot of peace, an ability to come into contact with deeper states of uh, samadhi and so forth very easily or pretty easily usually. Um, Now, any and all of those kind of unbinding, those levels of unbinding I was just describing can happen during a retreat. In fact, the retreat is a very auspicious time for them to happen. But regardless of whether they do during this retreat is not a big deal to me. It's not, it's not, it doesn't matter. What matters is you're actually cultivating the soil for it here. And that's for sure. You're definitely moving things around. You're definitely stirring the pot. They're definitely disrupting behavior patterns, thought patterns, belief patterns, whether you know it or not. They're getting disrupted by the mere fact that you're participating. So, um, so if you consider that living in that narrow bandwidth uh, a problem, it's not really a problem in the universal sense, but it's a problem in, in some sense, in the relative human sense, and the harm we cause one another, and the, even in our environment and animals and stuff. If you consider that a problem, the best thing you can do for that problem is what you're doing right now. There's, I'm not sure of a better <laughs> thing you can undertake. Um, perhaps wholehearted, full-on self-inquiry right now, you know, in any given moment. But that's not always your choice either. So, uh, so the fact that you're here is the best thing you can do for that. And as I kind of mentioned in the previous guided meditation, um, you're not expected to know what to do when all this stuff comes up during retreat because it's going to come up and most of the time you're not going to know what to do or whether you should do anything, or whether you're just called to sit through it, feel it, right? Um, just know that you're in the right place. Kind of the theme of my last two talks, I suppose. <clears throat> So one thing that comes up inevitably at the beginning of a retreat and periodically throughout retreat is that the mind, and by mind I just mean thoughts, they just get active. The mind gets activated. It seems to, seems to have more content, seems to have more output of thought than, than it usually does. This is usually something people notice pretty quickly or within, if you don't notice it now, you'll probably notice it by midday tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, and as I say in my book, and as I usually remind people, and I'll remind you again, it's not necessarily that the mind is more active. It's that we're actually disidentifying from the activity of mind. And when that happens, 
it's it's as if inst instead of being entangled and literally enmeshed in your thought system, you're becoming aware of thoughts as such. Thoughts become objects of your experience. And this also aligns with what I was talking about a moment ago of the, the sort of levels of unbinding. It's important, and we have to at some point, recognize a thought as a thought. If that never happens, like awakening isn't going to happen. Um, so at some point, it becomes important to recognize a thought that says, um, I'm a bad person, I'm a good person, I'm fundamentally flawed, or I'm, you know, God's gift to the world, whatever, whatever kind of thoughts we have about ourselves. And we, we need to, we need to not, um, continue with the hypnosis of that thought and break the spell by recognizing that's just one thought really. But the, the, act of being completely engaged in that thought in a moment leads to the next moment of the same thing and the next moment of the same thing. And it has a hypnotic momentum to it. And that's mind identification. And so when, when we start to break the spell of mind identification, we just notice thought after thought after thought. And people have different ways of talking about this. They can talk about it as a watcher state. You just become aware of thoughts, watching thoughts like kind of float across the sky or whatever. Um, I try not to use too many analogies like that because that can easily give you something to imagine. You can literally imagine yourself watching thoughts and it's not so much that as just having some awareness that what seems to be defining your experience at any given moment or actually in this given moment, in this moment, is a thought. If, you're, if your experience feels defined, it's always by a thought. There is, there is undefined experience. And um, that takes care of itself. I, I'd say you know when that's happening, but it's not, a, it's not the same kind of knowing. But it's very obvious, intuitively obvious. Immediately and intuitively obvious when there's undefined experience or completely unconditioned experience. And it feels very right. It feels like you know there's nothing you need to do right now. Very clear, very present. Um, but short of that, if it feels like your experience is defined, if it feels like there's some inherent way of being in this moment with some kind of tone that's been with you for years, whatever that tone is, hesitation tone, frustration tone, mis uh, not understanding tone, or the opposite, thinking you know everything about what's happening tone, any of these tones of experience, these are ultimately thoughts. These are, these are, in the background, there's a thought defining that. There's a belief defining that. And it's as close as recognizing that thought as a thought to find yourself in an unbound state very quickly. Now, it may not last long because the next thought may catch you, <laughs> the next tone of experience. But there aren't that many, actually. At any given time, there are maybe a few veils of, of identifying that are occurring that are just interwoven and propagate one after the other to keep you hypnotized in one way of speaking. We break a few of those and you're, you know what undefined experience is. Unconditioned experience. Even, I can't even really call it experience because there's not something apart from the experience. A comment I read today on one of my videos said, um, they're referencing something I said and what I said, and I've said it before. 
when you're sitting, and I'm usually talking about self-inquiry or like a one-pointed approach um, or like an intense self-inquiry approaching awakening, when you're sitting, even noticing a sensation or noticing a sound, the noticing of a sound itself is a thought, right? So the comment was, I don't understand if the noticing of a sound is a thought, can't there be a sound without a thought? And my answer was, yes, of course there can be. But there's a very important difference. That is the belief, this person, at least I would assume by making that comment, has the belief that there has to be a noticer for sound to occur. And that may sound philosophical, but it's not. It's a world of difference between sound with no noticer of sound and being the noticer of sound. It's a huge difference, actually. Vast, <laughs> huge difference. But it doesn't sound different because the mind is so used to it. So that's one of those veils of experience that's just there. And this is a very subtle one I'm talking about now. Very subtle. Doesn't go away till later on. Um, but to know sound without being a hearer of sound or a perceiver of sound is not only possible, it's actually happen happening for everyone all the time. It's just that there's something else happening very quickly right after it. <clears throat> so can you, this is a bit of a tangent, I think, but it's a good one. Can you be so direct with experience that there's no experiencer? Can sound be so direct I don't, the language breaks down because language is very structured and subject-object, but can sound be so clear that it's obvious there's no one hearing it? There's no one apart, there's no one or nothing apart hearing it. I'm not really negating a personal self here, I'm just saying there's not even a perceptual distance picking up the sound, receiving the sound. There's just sound. Sensation is the same way. Can there be a sensation, meaning something you're feeling right now in the body, anywhere, in your hands, in your heart, in your chest, in your gut, wherever, can there be a sensation that's so clear that, there's, that, that it's obvious that there's nothing receiving it? It's primary to a receiver of it, primary to some, someone or something feeling it or noticing it. Do you have to notice sound for sound to be there? Or is the noticing an afterthought? The proverbial clown that takes the bow, takes credit. That's happening all the time, the afterthought. Oh, I did that. Oh, I did this. Oh, I did that because of this. I did that because I'm upholding the, the bodhisattva vows. <laughs> no, you didn't. It's a thought. It's, it's just what's happening. That, it's that quick, that, that instantaneous, closer than close. Um, and that's what, we're, that's what all this is really about. It's just about this kind of absolute simplicity. So that was a tangent, but to step back a little bit, just know that even when thoughts are raging, thought, thought after thought after thought, um, the instantaneity, um, I think that might be a word. Is that a word? Instantaneity? I don't know. It, 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 the instantaneous nature of the five senses are always here operating. Those thoughts, no matter how many, there can be thousands and thousands of thoughts. They're not stopping 
that truth from being true. They're not, they're not making any distance from anything at all. There's no distance. So that's just a truth. It's just a... Um, unequivocal, unalienable truth about experience, about reality. So, back to thoughts. When there's thoughts raging on, the mind is yakety-yakety-yak. Um, if, it, if it doesn't feel unsettling, there's nothing you need to do about that. You don't need to have a strategy or take a position on it. Um, just notice it. It's okay. I would encourage you in that case, um, if, you're, if you feel that settled, even though thoughts are raging on, which can happen, you can feel settled in that case. You may not, but if you do, if you feel settled, um, I'd say just turn your attention a little bit to the settledness rather than the thoughts, but not pushing away the thoughts. If you don't, if you feel settled when that's happening, it means you've either right now you figured it out for some reason, or you've just come to a place of maturity where you don't struggle with thought. You don't push and pull on thought. You don't believe thought necessarily. So then they can be there or not. And that's great. Um, just notice the settledness itself is its own kind of experience, its own kind of primary experience, the settledness, the, the equanimity there. And then if your attention moves to thoughts, so be it. But the equanimity is sort of primary until you can feel both at the same time where there's equanimity and thought at the same time. But equanimity is a kind of... Um, it's kind of a it's kind of an ongoing unbinding, unbinding from a tendency, tendency to react, tendency to move toward, tendency to move away from. It has a feeling to it. It's a it's just a it's a like an alive unbinding that's always happening, and you you can just start to notice that as you notice thoughts. And then there's nothing to do because it's completely okay whether there are thoughts or not. And then often after some time the thoughts start to settle. Um, they don't have to, but at some point they will. If it's not that easy, if you really feel pushed around by your mind, pushed around by thoughts, struggling with this whole process, and there are a lot of thoughts, <clears throat> it can be helpful to ask yourself, what are my beliefs about this situation right now? What are my beliefs about thoughts right now? And how you find that answer is, is, it's kind of intuitive. I, I'm not sure I can give you an exact answer, but just asking the question is helpful. Asking the question is meaningful. Sometimes they'll just come to you. You're like, oh, I have, a, I have a belief that I actually have to pay attention to my thoughts. I have to actually be able to see and know what the thought is actually saying before I move on to the next one and the next one, right? As if it's almost like a, uh, parent-child thing, like you, your thoughts are your parent and you're the child and you got to pay attention. Believe it or not, that actually is not an uncommon one. So if you have that belief and you recognize it as a belief, that's just one more thought. Oh, I don't have to pay attention to the thoughts. They can come and go as they please. Now you're not so like bound into them, you know, focused, hyper-vigilant, like you might be on a parent who, you know, is demanding of you or dysregulated in their emotions where you're always hyper-vigilant to them. You know, you've heard of internal family systems. A lot of our interactions with thoughts are like this. 
um, you realize they're just thoughts. They don't cause any harm. They just kind of come and go. So that's one, one sort of approach to it. Um, another approach that may feel intuitively natural for you at some point is, um, and I, I wrote about this in the book, that there are sort of two phases to disidentifying from thoughts. The first phase is to become aware of thoughts as such. Again, you don't, you're not really getting very far if you don't even recognize what a thought is, you know. Um, but once you start to recognize, oh, that's another thought, that's another thought, um, it does, it can sort of set up that watcher state. It can, it's almost like you require a little distance to do that at first, and that's fine. You could almost call that a, like a pushing, you know, you're pushing thoughts a bit. You're not really doing that, but it, it sort of feels like that. You, you almost pull the subject in a little farther and recognize thoughts are actually objects to your experience. Oh, they're just objects to my experience. They're not real. You know, they're not what I am because whatever I am is back here and the thought is out, out here. I'm overly ver uh, verbalizing it, but that's kind of the experience sometimes. So once you've recognized what a thought is and you're not getting caught in the thought moment to moment, this often happens in a sort of meditative state or a, an inquiry state where it's quiet, you don't have a lot of distractions like in this environment. Then you can actually just re almost reverse your experience and move right toward the thought experience. But you're not, you're not re-identifying. You're moving into the substance of thought which is consciousness, essentially. This, this is the step that seems to confuse people the most because they don't seem to always know what I'm talking about. But when, when they do get it, it's a big aha moment. And they'll often say, oh my gosh, you've, heard, you've said that so many times and I finally know what you mean and it's so obvious. So my best way of explaining what this is if it's confusing is just actually become curious about what a thought is. So what I mean by that is like, if we're just sitting in this room and no one's talking about anything, and a, a mule comes walking through the room and leaves, we could all say a mule came in the room. And if I said, well, how do you know a mule came in the room? You're like, well, I saw it. It walked right here. It was like looking right, right? Okay, well, if you're sitting here and nothing's happening and all of a sudden you believe that um, something that happened in your past is, is causing problems for you, I would say, why do you believe that? What did you see that made you think that right now that wasn't there five minutes ago? That's a thought. Where's that thought? What is it made out of? What is it, right? You can say, well, the mule looks like this brown thing was walking through the room and it's about this distance from me, right? We, we, we let thoughts define our experience so frequently, but we somehow don't become curious, interestingly, about what the thought is actually made out of. It's made out of a substance. It's a, it's a substanceless substance, but it's something because it seems to be providing information. So once, at some point, you'll get curious enough, most people do, I think, to like, investigate it. Not, con not conceptually though, like directly. Like you just move your attention right toward the thought itself. This is subtle until it's not. It can seem very subtle, I know. But once you realize, when you get what I'm saying, like how much of your reality is defined by thoughts, there's gotta be something there, right? I'm not even saying there is something there, but there's, there's something you're taking information from experientially in, in the space of consciousness. So you just kind of move toward it. You move toward that substance of consciousness or the thought structure. A visual image might be an easier way to think about it and not everyone has visual thoughts. A fantastic people don't, people with aphantasia don't, but, um, but everyone has some kind of narrative thought unless they're identified. 
but say if you have, if you can imagine things visually, that's another that's a that's an example where you can kind of get that okay that seems to be made out of a substance right just like if a movie screen there's images playing on the screen such that you could identify the image you know that's an apple on the screen it seems to be made out of something what's making it look like that instead of a blank screen so you walk up to the screen and you go oh it's like kind of made out of like different colors and the closer you get it's like the colors are like just white right they they become light you notice oh they're light. And they're just very subtly different that make it look like colors and contrast. And you turn around and look right into the projector and there's light. It's just nothing but light. That's very much how consciousness is experienced when you do this. So I'll probably leave it at that because, again, this is one of those things like for some reason, it, it just takes a while to click sometimes. But once it clicks, it's really nice. You're not buying the thoughts. You're not believing thoughts. You're not getting re-identified. At the same time, you're not moving away from anything. It's almost like moving toward. So the, the, there's a reversal in that tendency to hesitate, to pull back, to avoid, right? We never actually avoid life. We avoid our mental image of life. Just like you never really get in an argument with someone. You get in an argument with who you think they are. And they get in an argument with who they think you are. And then you're interfacing through that delusion, right? Similar to thoughts. So... So those are a couple strategies when, when the thoughts get all wound up in your mind and so forth during retreat. And lastly, just wait it out. It'll, it'll calm down. It always does. Um, and, and then there's like categories of thoughts, like thoughts that are less common outside of retreat. Um, what can happen any, any time, of course. You may have really bizarre thoughts, things that you just don't normally think about, even things that feel very real, like uh, you almost feel like you're reliving an experience that you've had or reliving an experience you've never had. That's another thing that happens, almost like you're living an experience someone else had somewhere else along the line, and maybe you know them, maybe you don't. That's something that can happen. Um, you can almost have hallucinatory things where you'll hear a loud sound or you see flashes and for a moment, you're not sure, did this actually happen in this room? Like you might think there's something loud happened here. You open your eyes and there's no one else noticed it. So um, you can have these kind of illusory sensory experiences that aren't, it's not obvious whether they're internal or external or what. Um, none of these are a sign of progress, by the way, either. Don't, don't think you need to get these, but don't be surprised if it pops up here or there. Um, and... Weird things like fantasies, like sexual fantasies can come that are super intense out of nowhere. Don't feel like you even chose to do that. And it's just like, just firing off in your head. Like all kinds of things like that can happen. Um, and then, then emotions. So emotions is sort of the next category um, I usually touch on after talking about thoughts. And that is, it's not uncommon to experience intense emotions during retreat. Intense just meaning... Um, not intense meaning bad or problematic, intense meaning you feel them without so much filtering of the mind. So more direct, more, um, I don't know, visceral. And they can be specific to a situation, uh, a memory, something that happened to you, something that's happening now. And often they're not at all. You don't even know why you're feeling grief. I felt so much grief and I don't even know what it was really. I could summarize it by saying it's, you know, the grief of the illusion of self or something, but that's just a, that's an interpretation. It's, you know, the feeling of grief and loss 
comes with this process, then that's okay. Uh, anger can come, rage can come, fear for sure. Um, ecstasy, profound joy. There's less, uh, often less of a sense of I don't know what to do about it when these when the emotions come, rather uh, in in, um, in contrast to thoughts. With thoughts, they tend to be a little hypnotic. They can confuse us and get us re-identified a little bit. If we've sort of broken that spell of of the thoughts, usually the emotions less of an issue. It can be intense. It might not be what you would choose. But it's also obvious there's not, you don't need to do anything about it or with it. It's just here. It's here to be experienced and it's gonna stay as long as it needs to stay. Um, it can be a physical experience. People, you'll maybe hear people crying, weeping, laughing sometimes. It happens during retreat frequently. Um, and it can be a, an energetic physical experience. It can be like Kundalini, involuntary movements, uh, twitching. Shaking, these these things all happen uh, during retreats. Not everybody has them. Well, I think at some point everybody's going to get some version of it. Probably, if, if it's not a physical movement that you can observe, it may be something internal, like an experience of electricity moving up the spine or down the spine, um, pain, weird pains or jolts of energy, things like that. Like I can't even tell you, you know. The categories of them because I've had so many experiences of it and it tends to be pretty random. So uh, all of that par for the course. There's nothing specific to do with it or do about it. If you're getting a lot of it, grounding exercises can be helpful. You know, go out in nature, go outside, lay on the ground, touch the ground. Really go to the physical sense modality, the sensations. That helps if uh, there's a lot of charge. And then something like TRE can be helpful. Um, but I, I, I recommend doing it in the morning because it can be, it can char actually be stimulating, I guess, energetically. Um, We will do, during a retreat, we will do movement practice, which is intuitive, completely intuitive. It's, there's no specific strategy for how you move. But that's really a good time to explore when you have these energetic feelings, sensations, kundalini things, like explore how the body actually wants to move, how it wants to interpret those, those energies. And that can be helpful as well. We did, that, a lot of that happened at the last retreat here. We did a, we did a lot of that movement stuff in it. it was, very much a group experience. It was really, really cool. And I, you could feel the therapeutic aspects of it. Um, and uh, another area I want to touch on is, it's hard, a little hard to put it in a category. I guess you could say it's more in the emotion spectrum, but it's just something I'll call disorientation. And this type of disorientation is sort of defined by 
the fact that it tends not to happen outside a retreat. It can, probably when you have a tragedy or something really unexpected, that's more likely when it would happen. Um, but inside retreat, it's not uncommon. And disorientate, the disorientation I'm talking about is where it just feels like you don't know how to write yourself. You don't know how to find up and down anymore in a fundamental way. And it's, again, it's a strange sensation because you don't usually experience it in daily life. Some people might actually, depending on your, your situations and stuff. But uh, it's much more common in retreat. And you just feel like you don't know which way is up. Like you don't know which way to orient yourself and just, just kind of out of it. And it may not be that uncomfortable, but it may be uncomfortable, maybe kind of scary too at times. Um, in that case, I, 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 all the advice I gave at the opening talk, you know, if, if it's just oh, it seems overwhelming, just take, take some a round off, take some time off, sit, lay down, take a nap. Um, and then actually surprisingly helpful in situations like that is just putting your attention in your breath physically, the physical sensation of breathing. Just follow your breathing and touching anything, the floor. Put your hands somewhere, like grounding stuff. Touch the floor, just feel it, just feel it. Just the sensations themselves are really quite grounding actually when we feel like disoriented and um, not sure what the heck's, what the heck we're doing. <laughs> your mind will be saying, I don't even know why I came here, this is crazy, nothing, I'm going backwards, I'm going upside down, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know, you know, mind will just chatter on and it's trying to get traction, there's nowhere to get traction, that's how it feels. But the good news is you can't fall out of the universe. You, everyone gets through it. Everyone gets through those experiences and they get through them okay. But when you're in it, it can feel like just disorienting essentially. So just know that can happen. It may not happen to anyone here in, a, in an intense way during this retreat, but it certainly could. Yeah. Now, if you're in a place where you've been at this a while, or maybe even not even at it that long necessarily, but you're just sort of done with all of the spiritual maneuvering and trying to figure it out and exhausting your intellect and then trying again, and you're just kind of done with that. And you want to get right down to the fundamental issue the fundamental problem, problem of birth and death, let's say. Then you can just forget everything I said all day long. None of that shit matters. Doesn't matter. Because only you know where to go. There's a place that only you can go. Buddha can't go there for you. Dogen can't go there for you. Your teachers can't go there for you. I can't go there for you. But you can go there. It's not a place, certainly not a concept, not a paradigm, but it's calling you or you wouldn't be here. And it is a kind of leap of faith, um, often leap through a fear barrier, not a fear bear, but a fear barrier.
she thought I was saying fear bear for like a couple months or something. And <laughs> turns out there was no, there's no actual bear, but um, yeah, fear barrier. Uh, may, you may feel that. You may, it may feel just like this really, like you know where to go. You're like, yeah, I can feel it. It's like right over, it's just that way, you know, not literally that way. It's, a, it's an intuitive knowing of how to just keep going in the thoughtless, you know, staying with that, just staying with that. Could be a one-pointed approach, like just move. And then staying with it just a bit, and all of a sudden, like, this intense fear comes, physiologic fear. That happens. It doesn't have to happen, but it can happen. And if it does, just stay the course. Don't worry about the thoughts. Thoughts are thoughts. The physical experience of fear may be very intense, but it's usually short-lived. May last five or six minutes, seven minutes. It's a catecholamine response, essentially. Um, and beyond that, things often get even quieter. Stay in that, stay in that wordless, thoughtless, not binding to anything, not remaking yourself in all the ways you have learned to your entire life, not grabbing on to anything. And they feel deeply peaceful. If that's where you are, stay there. You're in the perfect environment for that. There's not, nothing to think about here. Carry it off to sleep with you. Stay with that right to the last little glimmer of consciousness blinks out as you're going to sleep. When you wake up, pick it back up. Just carry it with you like a secret that you can never tell because there's no words for it. And, and, and then it's just that, that it's your, it's your intuition that's going to carry you through. An intuition that is beyond, it actually goes beyond you. It's kind of where the personal, the intuition of the personal meets something that is truly impersonal, but it's also in one sense, powerful beyond anything in your dimension and you feel it in your dimension of experience, your human dimension. It's a, like the inside meets the outside in one sense. The completely unnameable meets what seems like a human experience. These are just descriptions though. You're not gonna be thinking about this. So that's available. You'll know when that's available. In that case, yeah, all this other stuff I'm saying, doesn't even matter. Bunch of words, bunch of thoughts. <laughs>